Hello, one and all. Welcome to Alternate Jersey, the podcast that reimagines your favorite sports moments to find out what could have happened. I'm your host and prototypical chaotic good, Grant Evan. In today's episode, we're going to be doing something a little different, a little longer, and a little overzealous. Welcome to a special edition of Alternate Jersey, Fix the Franchise. In Fix the Franchise, we'll be focusing on a team that have had such a deep plethora of terrible things that have happened to them that one simple Alternate Jersey episode just won't do. We will be going in reverse order, covering some of the biggest blunders the franchise has ever experienced and changing them for the better. Today's target, the Cincinnati Bengals. Since their creation in 1967, the Bengals have been a series of near misses, major disappointments, and borderline cursed. While the Cleveland Browns have been more of a punching bag since 1999, at least they have a history of NFL championships and a small handful of iconic players. The Bengals have two Super Bowl losses, a long history of draft busts, and playoff windows that just seem to slam shut in the blink of an eye. The Bengals also have the longest drought without a playoff victory, last winning a playoff game back in 1990. But today we're going to be flipping all the major events that have kept the Bengals from Super Bowl glory and playoff success. So strap in, grab some Skyline Chili, and let's fix the franchise. First up, Andy Dalton's thumb injury in 2015. The 10-3 Bengals were on a tear through the league and were ramping up to make a deep playoff run. However, in a game against the Pittsburgh Steelers, Dalton would be sidelined after breaking his thumb and be out for the remainder of the year. His backup, A.J. McCarron, got the team to a 12-4 record only for those same Steelers to beat them in the wildcard game of the playoffs, thanks in part to a terribly timed Jeremy Hill fumble and even more terribly timed penalties against Vontaze Burfitt and Pac-Man Jones. Ever since the stellar year from the Red Rifle, the Bengals have missed the playoffs for three straight years, and Dalton has become synonymous with mediocrity. However, had Dalton hung on, we can assume his great season continues, and since he wins the remainder of their games, giving them a 13-3 record and the number one seed. In addition to the number one seed, the Bengals ride Dalton's best year yet along their number one defensive unit all the way to a Super Bowl win against the Panthers, their first ever. From 2016 on, it's a steady but consistent decline as they lose a few key pieces of their once great defense and further injuries plague the team. They make a playoff appearance in 2016, net a winning record in 2017, and finally fall out of the picture in 2018. But Dalton nets the franchise an all-important ring on the heels of an incredible and healthy season in 2015. But if we go back a little further, we may be able to build something even more impressive. As we've mentioned before, Dalton has yet to actually net the Bengals any kind of real success, and as we previously discussed, even at his very best would probably get the team just one ring and then slowly slide out of relevance. But there was another option in that 2011 draft that Dalton came from. The story goes that drafting Dalton in the second round of 2011 came at the urging of then Bengals offensive coordinator and future Redskins head coach Jay Gruden. But if owner Mike Brown is to be believed, he wanted a very different quarterback, Nevada's Colin Kaepernick. So let's assume the owner beats out the coordinator here and the Bengals take Cap. 
Biss leaves Andy Dalton to go to the 49ers instead, which is fitting since he's basically Alex Smith Jr. 2011 will call a wash year for these rookies as Colin finds his footing on the team and Dalton sits for a year waiting for his shot, but the stars really align for Caps Bengals in 2012. Kaepernick nets two extra wins, netting them a divisional title from under the nose of Baltimore and grabbing the number three seed. They defeat the would-be champion Ravens in the wildcard round and start marching their way through the entire playoffs where they eventually reach the Super Bowl against Green Bay. Yes, the Packers no longer have the 49ers to worry about in the playoffs because instead of Colin Kaepernick coming around to run all over them, it's Andy Dalton. The Packers don't have much competition to get past heading into the big game, but it turns out Kaepernick does still have Green Bay's number. Bengals win the Super Bowl. And if you're a fan of the Kaepernick-Wilson rivalry, I have exciting news. The Bengals may get back to the big game in the 2013-14 season, but this time the Legion of Boom and Wilson are able to keep the defending champs away from a second ring. The Bengals then make their third straight AFC championship, but ultimately lose to the Patriots. But the fantastic 15-16 season is now headlined by a less mobile, but more accurate Kaepernick. If we're going to give Andy Dalton a ring that year, you better believe Cap can do it. Panthers go down again, and Collins got two rings, which turns out to be the exact right amount to prevent anybody within the Bengals organization to get too mad at him when he starts his protests. An uninjured Dalton, one ring. Picking a quarterback with a higher skill set, two rings. But now we gotta go further back, all the way to 2006, to fix up another quarterback. The Bengals looked to be the force to be reckoned with in the 05-06 playoffs. Carson Palmer, a third-year starter, had just led the league in touchdowns and looked to add another victory over Pittsburgh to his resume. Folks were already starting to utter Palmer's name in the same breath of Manning and Brady as a potential all-time great, and then disaster struck Palmer's knee. After an early throw, a throw that set the Bengal playoff record for a longest play, I might add, Palmer went down with a knee injury that not only took him out of the game, it took the Bengals out of the playoffs and completely changed how Carson would play during his remaining tenure in Cincy until he was eventually traded to Oakland in 2011. But without the injury, the Bengals throttle the would-be champion Steelers. Palmer then goes on to fulfill his destiny and win the Super Bowl against the Seattle Seahawks, cementing his legacy as the first great Bengal quarterback. Over the next few seasons, the Bengals will remain a consistent playoff threat, but it's the 09-10 season where they really come back into form. Cincinnati nets themselves a 14-2 record, finishing just behind Peyton's Colts. And as fate would have it, that's exactly who they face in the AFC Championship game for a chance to challenge the Saints. Palmer proves he can be in the conversation of AFC Juggernaut by knocking around the Colts' defense and squaring off against Sean Payton's Saints, a game in which, according to our simulations, the Bengals win. Palmer gets his second ring. The Bengals get a chance to defend their title in the 10-11 season, but are ultimately defeated by the Packers of destiny. But that's not to say Carson Palmer is done with Super Bowl wins. Obviously, with two wins and three appearances under his belt, the healthy Palmer sticks around in the Queen City and never sees Oakland and definitely doesn't have to revive his career in Arizona. Instead, we see the Bengals return to the Super Bowl in the 15-16 season to beat, 
you guessed it, the Panthers in the Super Bowl. But now let's go even further back. Time for us to party like it's 1999 as we revisit one of the all-time worst draft decisions the Bengals or any team may have ever made. Drafting Achilles Smith. The 1999 draft was supposed to be one of those all-time great quarterback classes. Five quarterbacks ended up going in the first round of this draft, but only one of them would ever see a Super Bowl and not a one would win one. So while one could argue that Cleveland taking Tim Couch instead of Donovan McNabb or even Dante Culpepper in this draft may have been the worst decision, the Bengals taking Achilles Smith at number three may haunt them forever. Achilles Smith was a bust, but the context in which he became a bust is honestly flabbergasting. The Bengals were approached by the New Orleans Saints to trade spots with them in the draft, a move which would move Cincy down nine spots to number 12. While that's not the most appealing number of spots to drop down by, the Saints were absolutely desperate to land running back Ricky Williams. To do this, the Saints offered, and I say this with no hyperbole, every single damn pick in the 99 draft. All of them. They would swap firsts and obtain the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh picks in the draft along with the Saints first and third in 2000. The Saints, and by the Saints, I mostly mean Dick Butkus, were willing to give their next seven picks just to land Ricky Williams. Opportunity knocked on the Bengals' door, the Bengals declined, and they got the worst quarterback in the draft as their consolation prize. The Saints would eventually make the same offer to Washington, who gladly took it, obviously, and moved down to 12, before turning right back around and swapping spots with Chicago for Champ Bailey. But if Cincy had taken the trade, one, they are loaded, but more importantly, they dodged the Smith bullet altogether. Washington still swaps spots with Chicago, so Achilles Smith is still going to be available at 11 for Minnesota to take. Note, this would have been viewed as a steal in this draft, as Smith was viewed as a great prospect. So, with the 12th pick, Cincinnati settles for Dante Culpepper. Culpepper sits behind Bengals starter Jeff Blake for about 12 games as he amasses a 3-9 record. When Dante Culpepper does finally step in, the Bengals improve to a 6-10 record and Culpepper becomes the starter going forward. Achilles Smith is thrown immediately into the fire of Minnesota and is cooked alive. Culpepper comes alive in 2000. How alive? Let me put it this way. In 2000, Achilles Smith threw three touchdowns as the Bengals starter. That's it. Culpepper in Minnesota threw 33 touchdowns. For you math nerds, that's an 11-time increase in touchdowns since he's about to experience. Dante's Bengals go 12-4 easily, netting themselves a wild card behind the AFC Central Division champion Titans and fellow rivals the Ravens. Sitting at the fifth seed and going up against one of the greatest defenses in NFL history proves too much for the mobile Culpepper, so we'll give him a playoff exit here as Baltimore still beats the Giants in the Super Bowl. 2001 was famously when Culpepper suffered his first major injury, but he's not going to be stuck behind the Vikings offensive line this time around. Plus, even with the injury, he still threw more touchdowns than Bengals 2001 starter John Kitna and nine fewer interceptions. So the Bengals 6-10 record turns into a 10-6 record and just barely edging the defending Ravens out of the playoffs entirely. 
it's not going to mean much for the Bengals, but you can already start to see what Culpepper means for this team. It all comes to a head in 2004, but first some re-scrambling of drafts here. The Bengals are good enough to avoid the number one pick in 2003, which means Carson Palmer goes to the Lions. They're able to take him because the Vikings took Joey Harrington in 2002 because they ditched Achilles Smith before 2002. So hey, something good finally happens to Detroit. Culpepper comes with a vengeance in 2004. Here's a quick look at his stat line that was utterly wasted in Minnesota. 39 touchdowns, 11 interceptions, and 4,717 yards. Palmer was good in Cincy, but Culpepper threw more than twice as many touchdowns with seven fewer picks. This means the 8-8 Bengals look near unstoppable with a 15-1 record, snatching the number one seed away from Pittsburgh and dropping the Steelers down to a wildcard slot with a 13-3 record. The Bengals and Patriots duke it out in the AFC Championship, but it's Culpepper's mobility that beats out Brady's gang to send Cincinnati to their first Super Bowl. It's a battle with fellow 1999 draftee Donovan McNabb, and according to every simulation, it's the Eagles who get the big win here. Now, this is usually where Culpepper's stats dip off. He struggles to stay healthy heading into 2005, and the Vikings, of course, eventually let him walk in 2006. I'm going to assume the same thing starts happening in 2005. Culpepper is injured in both the 05 and 06 seasons, forcing the Bengals to cut ties with their first Super Bowl quarterback since the 80s. This puts them in prime position, however, to make some splashes in the upcoming drafts. The Bengals spend 2007 in limbo, which leads us to 2008, where they can take Matt Ryan before Atlanta gets a shot at him. Ryan and Flacco, out of the same draft, now become division rivals. Ryan plays well enough in 2012 to keep Baltimore out of the playoffs and beat the 49ers in the Super Bowl. And, as usual, gets a victory over Carolina in 2015 with a repeat trip to the Super Bowl to face the Packers in 2016 which he also wins. So, as you can see, there's been a handful of blunders from the modern Bengals, but as I said before, this franchise has been a long series of odd decisions and blown opportunities, so travel back with me to 1976. Bengals owner slash general manager slash head coach slash Ohio legend Paul Brown had just announced that he would be retiring from his coaching duties to focus more on owning and general managing. So, naturally, he was now in charge of choosing his own replacement. The strongest candidate was his assistant coach that he had had since 1968, Bill Walsh. Walsh, you may recall, is now an NFL coaching legend, leading the 49ers to three Super Bowls, developing what is now famously referred to as the West Coast Offense, a system that prioritizes shorter, more frequent completions and flexibility in a play to cater to more mobile quarterbacks. And, start of a legendary coaching tree that includes, to name a few, Mike Holmgren, Mike Sherman, Brian Billick, Mike McCarthy, Mike Shanahan, John Gruden, Tony Dungy, both of the Harbaugh brothers, Gary Kubiak, and Mike Tomlin. Of course, Brown didn't hire him. Instead of going with the hot and up-and-coming genius coach who had just spent four years developing previously laughed-at quarterbacks, he opted to go with the Bengals offensive line coach, Bill Tiger Johnson. He did this with the hopes that Walsh would stay on and help the more conservative-style coach. 
Walsh refused. For the next three seasons, Paul Brown would do everything in his power to prevent Walsh from having any other interview in the league. Walsh would essentially be blacklisted from the NFL, instead being forced to coach college ball at Stanford, where he saw a great deal of success. The Niners eventually signed him as the head coach in 1979. As head coach of the Niners, he would develop his West Coast offense further, use it to generate one of the greatest dynasties of all time, and beat the very Bengals who spurned him in two of his three Super Bowl wins. Meanwhile, Tiger would quit as the Bengals coach halfway through 1978. But now if Walsh was named the head coach, Walsh officially starts seeing league success in the 80s in our real world after developing decent Notre Dame prophet Joe Montana into a living legend. When he gets the reins from Brown in 75, he has Ken Anderson to work with. A quick note about Kenny Anderson, in case you're wondering who... Anderson was the Bengals franchise guy for nearly two decades, starting from 1972 to 1985. And he wasn't a schmuck either. Anderson would throw for a little under 200 touchdowns in his career, would lead the Bengals to a Super Bowl, won league MVP in 81, and had a glimmer of that mobility you would expect from a Bill Walsh West Coast offense. And now, Walsh is getting Ken right during his prime. Anderson and the Bengals went 10-4 under Tiger, so throw Walsh in, who already has familiarity with the team, into the mix, and they go from just sitting outside of the playoffs to a 12-2 number 2 seed. They make it to the AFC Championship against Ken Stabler and the Raiders, a game that they win, according to our simulations, and the Bengals go on to beat the Minnesota Vikings in the Super Bowl, and Bill Walsh becomes an immediate legend. Walsh goes 10-4 with Anderson in 77 and butting the rival Steelers out of the playoffs. The Broncos get past the defending Bengals this time, allowing the Cowboys to net a Super Bowl win here. But here is when Anderson starts suffering from some slip-ups in his career. In the next three years, Ken Anderson, under a carousel of coaches, would fail to get a winning record. Walsh manages to curb this and keep the team in the mix, which is good because Ken Anderson is about to have the biggest year of his career. The 1981 Bengals are the scourge of the AFC, even without Walsh. With Walsh, the gang goes 13-3, gets an even stronger number one seed, and once again marches into the Super Bowl as huge favorites. But now they don't have Joe Montana to worry about. No, Montana is still a 49er, but without Walsh, he hasn't developed into a superstar. Their opponents now are the Dallas Cowboys, a team Walsh has a great history of defeating. Ken Anderson gets ring number two at the expense of Big D. But then the sun sets on the Anderson era as he starts to suffer injuries for the next three years. 1984, Walsh starts looking for his next great quarterback to mold. The Bengals, luckily for us, are the first team to take a quarterback in this draft. Maryland's Boomer Esiason. Esiason would become a great for the Bengals. Another trip to the Super Bowl, league MVP in 88, four Pro Bowls, and a staple for the franchise all the way up to 97. And now, he's got Bill Walsh coaching him. Boomer's first two years, he spends getting his feet wet, but in 86, the team grabs a number one seed by slipping past Cleveland and beating Denver in the AFC Championship for a shot at the Super Bowl. 
They lose to the Giants here, but in 88, Boomer is the MVP, Walsh is the coach, the Bengals look like world beaters, and Montana is nowhere to be found. Instead, the Chicago Bears are back in the Super Bowl, but Walsh's innovations helped Boomer slip past a weaker version of the Monsters of the Midway, and Boomer's got his first ring, the first under Walsh. Walsh, who has now led Cincy to four Super Bowls over a stretch of 13 years, retires on top, cementing his tenure as a Bengal as one of the great all-time franchises. So, Cincinnati's problems appear to begin with Paul Brown choosing to be petty and hiring a subpar coach instead of a brilliant up-and-comer, and then through a series of further pettinesses, put that very coach in a position to beat the Bengals in two Super Bowls. So what if we removed Paul Brown from the equation entirely? Paul Brown, the Bengals' founder, the namesake of the very stadium they play in, and father to current owner Mike Brown, wasn't always a Cincinnati boy. As you may have guessed, he used to oversee a different team, the Cleveland Browns, who, yes, are named after him as well. During his tenure as owner of the Browns from 1946 to 1961, the Browns would win four NFL championships and make it to five straight conference championships. He was a beloved Ohio figure as coach of the Buckeyes and his tenure as a high school coach. Eventually, a new owner would take over, allowing Brown to focus on his GM and head coach duties. That owner, Art Modell, fired him in 1963. Modell and Brown never saw eye-to-eye at all, and Paul had every desire to get back into the NFL, but could only do it if he founded an AFL team. Brown had no desire to join the AFL, who, at least in the mid-to-late 60s, was viewed as an inferior football league. Brown was given assurance that the merger between the two leagues was imminent, so he did what he was best at, created an Ohio football team. He would found the Cincinnati Bengals and, as we said earlier, would become their general manager and head coach up until 1975. The Bengals have become a staple rival of the Browns since their founding. The Browns play in an opposing stadium called Paul Brown Stadium every single year. Since Brown's departure from Cleveland and since the Bengals' founding, neither team has a Super Bowl win or any deep era of success. Brown and Modell, through their own bitterness and petty behavior, may have doomed professional football in Ohio for over 50 years. But let's say Paul Brown stayed in Cleveland. I don't know exactly how we get Brown and Modell to work together, but one way or another we're keeping Brown in here. Maybe he ends his coaching tenure and becomes a permanent general manager. Maybe Modell never assumes ownership. Loads of possibilities, but right now, we need to talk about the future of the Cincinnati football team. Looking into the history of the city, Cincinnati wasn't exactly a hot market for professional football. Brown was an Ohio guy through and through and knew he would at least have a place to land thanks to the Reds and the MLB, but there was one slight problem with that. The Reds were experiencing major stadium issues, issues that the city wasn't willing to fix and the owner didn't have the means to do on his own. On top of that, with New York losing two of its professional baseball teams to cities in California and with Cincinnati not helping then-Reds owner Powell Crosley, the city of New York was trying to lure Crosley to relocate the Reds to New York. Crosley wanted to stay in Ohio, but without Paul Brown coming to town to pitch a dual stadium concept, and without the help of the government, Crosley takes New York on their offer and moves the Reds there. 
The NFL still merges with the AFL in 1970, but instead of an extra team in Ohio, they add a team a little further south in Memphis. Wanting to make the league even, the league instead approves a proposal for the Memphis Grizzlies to join in 1974. This, of course, would make it harder for the Oilers to go to Nashville, and naturally the future NBA team would need to choose a new name. It would probably be Hound Dogs, after that failed 95 NFL expansion bid. Point of the matter is, without Paul Brown, not only would the Bengals not exist, but the bustling Queen City may, to this day, not have any major sports franchises. And maybe that's for the better. And that is what could have happened if we fixed the entire Cincinnati Bengals franchise. How do you feel? Do you agree? Disagree? Feel free to call me out or shout me out on Twitter at GrantEvanAJ. Thank you for listening to a special edition of Alternate Jersey. We'll be back next time with another story and another jersey.